0: Um, We're going to look at James chapter 2 today, so if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you've ever spent any time with uh, the book of James, which I know a number of you have, some of you have actually gone about to memorize it, you know it's an immensely practical book. And part of the reason it's so practical is that James is really concerned that his audience realize that true Christian faith uh, changes how we live. And it has to, for as far as James is concerned, it's not really Christian faith unless it does. And what James is challenging us to think about here is how our faith uh, should change how we look at one another. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the, other, to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, uh, Lord, this is an especially practical passage, uh, and an easy one to be convicted by, an easy one to misunderstand. And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, you would uh, protect me from being unnecessarily offensive. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bridge whatever gaps there are so that your message would be clear to your people, that you would encourage us, and that you would shape us more and more after the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Just for a matter of context, uh, the book of James, you may not know this, was written to quite a church. Most believe the human author, um, James, was the brother of Jesus. And he was also one of the first major leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And that means the first audience for the letter, was the church where it all began. This was the church where the apostles gathered and worshipped, preached and taught. It was where Paul was sent out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was the location where the first ecumenical council was held. To put it in a little more contemporary language, um, the church in Jerusalem uh, was the first epicenter church and it ought to have been. It was stacked with apostles, and it was stacked with people who had seen Jesus face to face. But more still, this congregation was blessed with people who had grown up together, with large families, large families who had come out of Judaism, who would have shared a common heritage, values, and culture, common relationships, not to mention a deep familiarity with the scriptures most would have had the Psalter memorized, and they would have known how to sing. Sing even better than Harvest sings. Yeah, exactly. And, and therefore, with all the vibrant preaching, singing, teaching, fellowship, it was, a, it was a little bit of a Harvest-esque congregation, if I could be so bold, and yet... As James addresses them here, they had their problems too. He says, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we as a church, as well as the church in Jerusalem, need to grapple with as well. So first, what is partiality? Second, why is it so bad? And third, What are we supposed to do instead? And we'll look at these in turn. Point one, what is partiality? James says, verse two through four, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. It's this final verse that gives us James's shorthand definition of what partiality is. It's to make distinctions among ourselves and thereby become judges with evil thoughts. But I want us to think about what this really means. So is all judgment bad? Or are there really no differences at all between people, sinful or otherwise? Paul, for instance, does not think so. Instead, he insists that we distinguish between our various gifts. And with respect to sin, he says, Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so what does James really mean? What does he have in mind here? Well, I think we can start to get a sense from his description. It's noteworthy that the only differentiating factors that James lists are external. It would seem that the entire opinion of these men who are judging is based on what kind of clothing these other men are wearing, one fine and the other shabby or poor. And so just try to imagine how that might compare to our own context. I think we could say that the rich man would have been a Dutch man. He'd be well-dressed, perhaps with a suit and tie. He'd be married. He would drive a nice car, but not overly nice because he's a Dutch man. Okay. Or better, he's a, uh, driving a minivan or a conversion van, and it's filled with nicely polished, well-behaved children. They'd all have Bibles, and they'd know exactly what they're supposed to do in church, And they'd know a number of people already at the church. Perhaps they'd even be related to a few of the families that are at church. In fact, I bet we could assume that they would definitely be related to some of the families at church. And as a result, their entering our fellowship would feel almost like a homecoming. We'd say something along the lines of, please, sir, come sit over here with us. And I think you can see the picture. Well, how about the poor man? Well, I think we could probably say that he wouldn't be Dutch, and he probably wouldn't be white. He'd be dressed poorly or at least differently. Perhaps he'd be wearing dirty jeans that sag down below his waist. Age-wise, he might be over the age of our normal demographic. Perhaps he's in his 60s or 70s. If he drove a car, it would be a beater. He might be single. He might walk in late or be unemployed he might be socially awkward and he probably wouldn't know a soul here or or worse he'd grown up around these parts and so he knows many of the people here but every one of those memories is a sour memory and so when this person approached we might say sir are you lost can i help you find the address that you're looking for and and that starts to make this a little more uncomfortable and also present. But what these brothers do with their distinction goes a, a little bit deeper. It, it seems like they used these external observations to determine what each of these people was worth. That's the meaning of you sit here in a good place and you sit over there, you sit at my feet. They're not just organizing, they're not just ushering people to find the, the most available seat, but they're, they're stratifying They're placing people on a hierarchy of inferior and superior value. And so James's partiality is something like a Tinder approach to church membership. Now, I know the young people are familiar with this, but this is a dating app, and it's the most popular dating app. And all you have to do is you look at someone's picture, and if you like it, you swipe to the right. If you don't like it, you swipe to the left. And that's all it takes to find that magic person that is the next person for you. Well, this is again, it's it's like a Tinder approach to church membership. And yet, while that might be a little offensive, isn't that just poor judgment? When you just advise that person, hey, there's a there's a there's a better way to get at the root of things here than just looking at outward appearances. But for James, this kind of judgment is. Is what he, it's evil. And so point to, why, why is partiality so bad? Well, it's for two main reasons: how wrongly it sees others and how wrongly it sees itself. James treats the first in verses five through seven, he says, "Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom?" But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, they've judged their brothers, but their judgment is so poor that it doesn't bear even the slightest resemblance to the Lord. You could say that it's contrary to the Lord's judgment. For instance, while the Lord looks at the heart, they're not. Well... The Lord has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. They've determined that those who are rich in the world are rich in faith and will be heirs of the kingdom. And conversely, those who are poor in the world don't have faith and aren't heirs of the kingdom. And finally, what the Lord has determined to honor, they dishonor and vice versa. And so why? Why are they this wrong? Well, they're this wrong because they haven't simply erred in their judgment, but, but they're trying to accomplish something else with their judgment. You see, instead of trying to discern where these folks might best serve in the body, that's, that's Paul's finding, their, finding our gifts, or, or how they themselves might be of greatest service to them because they're, they're struggling with some, they're stuck in some transgression or sin, and how can I help you with that? They're trying to discern which of these folks might be of greatest service to them. That's why there's such a contradictory assessment of value. It's it's because while the Lord chooses to bestow riches and honor even on the poor, these evil judges are taking these people and they're they're reducing them all down to the sum of their worldly wealth. And why? So, So that they can ascertain how much this person might be of benefit to them. And so these people aren't so much like people to them, or or certainly not people made in the image of God, but but they're like objects. And as objects, they're freely discarding people, anyone who who doesn't appear to have what they want, and honoring anyone who does. And that means their honor, well, it's, it's really not quite honor. Think about your your child who wants the candy bar. Instantly, what happens? Well, they're a perfect child, right? What can I do for your mom? And mom falls for it, or this mom does, okay? Um, And and that's, that's manipulation. They're being nice, or they're kissing up so that they might improve their chances of getting what they want. And yet, very sadly, the evil runs deeper still. James says, verse 8 through 11, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And this this passage right here this part really gets at the heart of it. The reason they're showing they're showing partiality to their brothers is because they haven't just misjudged them but they've misjudged themselves. By their estimation, while their brothers are a mess, they're not. While they've managed to pull their life together, they haven't. And so they have a right and are right to stand in a place of judgment over their brothers and sisters, and so James, James' uh, words here are, are really to say: Really, even if it was true that you're a more in a more mature place than your brother, is that who you are, and is that who they are? The people who worked hard, who made it, who earned it, and the people who didn't or haven't. And the answer very clearly here is no, as James reminds them. You're a sinner just as far as they are a sinner. Maybe you haven't sinned in the same way. Maybe you haven't sinned as severely as they have. But that sure doesn't make you innocent. It sure doesn't make you a meritorious success. And it sure doesn't set you above them in some way. For as he puts it, if you are guilty at a single point, and all of us are, you are guilty of the whole thing. And as a result, there's there's no place for the arrogance of stratification and partiality. We all come from the same humble estate. We are all debtors to the cross. We just sung about this. Our standing doesn't come from what we've done, what we own, what we know, but what our Savior has done on our behalf. And so point three, what are we supposed to do instead? Well, James says, verse 12, so speak and so act... As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So instead of partiality, instead of making distinctions among yourselves with evil thoughts, instead of tendering your brother according to how they might benefit you, instead of penalizing them for their sins, live with them and speak and act toward them according to the same law of liberty that Christ has applied to you. And so, what does that mean exactly? Well, the law of liberty that James is referring to is that gospel-found consequence that since Christ has borne the penalty of the law for us, we have been liberated from the penalty of the law. In other words, for Christians, the law is neither a haunting slave master anymore or abolished, but instead a help. Instead of condemning us it reminds us of our need of Christ, and it shows us how to follow Christ. And thereby, thereby, this law of liberty also teaches us how to relate to our brothers and sisters. Instead of, for instance, going on the hunt for difference in sin, like with a stick, like a, like a fault-finding uh, game of whack-a-mole, our, our default ought to be, in a single word, Mercy. That's why James follows up with this warning in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then the sweet conclusion, mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying this because if we can't see how to show mercy to our brother, he's raising the question, do you really understand the mercy that has been shown to you? And so, what does this mean for us? Well, as much as I would hate to, as I, as I do hate to say it, we, we have a partiality problem at harvest. We're not total failures. As a congregation, there are uh, a lot of times where we have embraced outsiders those who are weak, that are different, who are lost, those who have repented of their sin. We've welcomed them back with big open arms. We uh, we have pockets of people who have made this walking in the law of liberty a, a way of life. And I think our deacons in particular consistently practice speaking and acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty in marvelous uh, model ways. But just like the vibrant church in Jerusalem, we we also have room to grow. And so I just I don't want this to be unnecessarily offensive, but I do want us to come to grips with, with the reality that this, this really is a problem in our church. It's probably a problem in every church, but, but it's ours too. Um, I was re- it was reported to me by one person, I won't name them, but uh, they read the title, You're Welcome Here, uh, Maybe, and they know that it's about partiality, and so they let me know that they uh, welcomed a new person today and so this does not apply to them, okay? Um, And and so perhaps that's the case, all right? But um, on the hospitality side, we've had visitors, Dale just talked about one this morning, that didn't fit our normal demographic, and so they left untouched. Still happens. We have some people here right now who do fit our demographic, but we haven't really noticed them because they don't have pre-established connections with any family members here. And we have people in leadership positions today who are incredibly gifted servants, and I'm, I'm so glad for them, and you are too, but it took them years to break into the ranks of the Harvest Establishment. On the evangelism side, we come from communities, and our church is in a community, but our congregation there's only slight resemblance to those communities. And there's reasons why that is. On the internal working side, we have some measure of gossip, favoritism, and cliques at every age level in our congregation. And so again, while this isn't across the board or with equal intensity everywhere all the time, we have a partiality problem. And as James points out, it's an evil problem. It's it's one that should be grotesque to us. And so how do we grow here? Or to put it a different way, how, how do we promote a culture in which mercy triumphs over judgment? And the answer is by learning to extend the same gospel to others that Christ has been pleased to extend to us. That's what we need to take away. By learning to extend the same gospel to others That Christ has been pleased to extend to us. See, the fundamental disconnect in the partiality paradigm is that we think there's a justification for showing partiality. At the base of it, we think the reason that God chose us, whether it's it's a subtle thought in our head, uh, rather than a, a subconscious one, rather than a conscious one, we think the reason that God chose us is because there was something in us that made us worth choosing. In another way, we're better than the other brother. And inevitably that kind of thinking warps a church into a kind of successful people club. It sets one against another as those who belong and those who don't. And for each group it's a continuously precarious situation. We're always asking, we're always judging, we're always competing. Do I still make the cut? Or have I done enough yet to make the cut? Well, thankfully, That's not true of of christ's church that's what paul notes in romans 3 he says all are under sin no one is righteous no one seeks god all have turned aside together they have become worthless first corinthians 1 26 and following he says consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. And John, in John three sixteen, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so just think about what this means. If God had shown us partiality, none of us would make it. Nobody in the church, all disqualified, but but he didn't. John's whoever is the definition of impartiality, and he demonstrated that impartiality by choosing not those who had something to offer or had made it, but most frequently, most normally, those who had nothing or who had most obviously failed in a lot of ways. And so far from the church being some kind of successful people club, it's actually more of a community of forgiven failures. The people who belong here are the ones who professed and continue to profess that they are weak and broken and insufficient. The ones who cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, and whom the lord according to his own impartial choice and even though he knew the full depth and breadth of how bad we actually are which we don't even fully realize was pleased to show mercy then and now and until the end forever that's how good this law of liberty is our savior didn't just cover us for yesterday or give us a fresh start but he bought the whole thing By the grace of God, our sanctification doesn't take and place us on a torture chamber, on a tightrope, but a mercy bath. And that's good news. It's awesome news. It's the news we preach about, we sing about, we stand in, we love. But it's, it's news that we have to apply to our brothers and sisters as impartially as it has been applied to us. And so what does that look like? It's not so complicated, and we've covered some already, but it, but it looks like being slow to judge. It looks like being quick and eager to show mercy. It looks like saying, how can I help you instead of what's wrong with you? It looks like saying, we want you here and we need you here instead of, you, you might be welcome here if... dot dot dot." It looks like learning to see every Christian, no matter how different they are, No matter how much they have to grow, no matter how sinful they've been, or how slow and rocky their sanctification is right now, as forgiven sinners, as those whose whose differences have been given by God, whose deficiencies are covered by Christ, and whose part with us was planned before the foundation of the world so that we might be the agents of mercy and help in their life and they in ours. That's what James is calling us to hear. It's it's not to be a church where we ignore our differences or sins, but where the mercy that Christ has shown to each of us echoes forth again and again in every one of our relationships with one another. It's where mercy triumphs over judgment, just like it does in the gospel. And that's good news. Now, I just want to give one quick word to anyone here who who maybe doesn't know about this mercy of Christ. Maybe you don't know about this mercy, but, but I'm sure you know about judgment. It's everywhere in the world that we live. It says heaven is wealth and power and beauty, and it shows partiality to anyone that seems like they've got it or who might be able to take you there. And sadly, perhaps... You've had interactions with the church that feel the same way because you've been shown partiality in the church. You felt like, I've got to get married, I've got to know this level of theology, I've got to be this good a parent. Now, those are all good, good things. I've got to have this level of income, etc., before I can make the cut and God will consider me worthy to join his company. Well, both of these expressions are false. False. They're neither heaven or how to get there. The only real escape from the judgment that we actually face, which is far worse than poverty or ugliness or weakness, is to receive mercy from the one who bore the judgment for us. But The good news here is is what you have to do to receive it. John says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not receive judgment but have eternal life. Receive mercy. And this means that Jesus triumphed over our judgment with mercy. And he holds that out to you freely and impartially. You don't have to pull your life together first or be uh, better than that guy or this guy, But, but simply believe and trust yourself to Jesus Christ. And so the question for you is, will you? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we are in awe when we consider who we really are, the sinners who so easily follow their temptations, who devise their own kingdoms, who rebel against you, and you, Lord, knowing all that, who we were, who we are, and what we have yet to do, chose to impartially set your love upon us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives by your Holy Spirit to awaken us to the truth of the gospel and to receive it. And we pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who who has yet to do so, that you might do that work right now. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider the mercy that you have shown to us, and you awaken us more and more to that, you would would help us to show that to one another. You would make us a people eager to show mercy to one another, that loves to show mercy to one another, that loves to be united together. Please help us to grow in this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.